right, all right. Thanks for being here this morning, everyone. If you want to make your way back to your seat, take out your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 23. My name is Johnny. I'm the lead pastor here. If this is your first time, thank you so much for being with us. We've been in a series in the book of Matthew, kind of off and on over the last few years, and we're in the final stretch. And we're looking this morning at Matthew chapter 23. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read Matthew 23 together. We're going to pray and ask for God's help. And then we're going to walk through this passage together. Matthew chapter 23 says this. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. They, high up, they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. But you are not to be called rabbi because you have one teacher and you're all brothers and sisters. Do, do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who's in heaven. You are not to be called instructors either because you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gold of the temple is bound by his oath. Blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold. Also, whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing, but whoever takes an oath, an oath by the gift that is on it is bound by his oath. Blind people, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, the one who takes an oath by the altar takes an oath by it and by everything on it. The one who takes an oath by the temple takes an oath by it and by him who dwells in it. And the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but gulp down a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the inside of the cup and dish, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophet's blood. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. 
Fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sins. Snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I'm sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So all the righteous bloodshed on the earth will be charged to you, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all these things will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Father God, this is your word. Would you help us through your Holy Spirit to understand it, to receive it as being from you, and to apply it to our lives. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there is more than one way to pursue God. There's more than one right way, and there's also many wrong ways to pursue God. Not all those ways are equally valid. Part of being a pastor is when I tell people I'm a pastor, I kind of try to put it off for a while because saying that brings something out in people sometimes where they try to prove to me that they're religious. And I get this neighbor out at Starbucks, like wherever. Well, we get to talking, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. Well, let me tell you, I like to be out in nature. That's kind of my church. And I'm like, man, we don't have to, we don't have to do this right now. <laughs> There's a guy, David, who tells me every week I need to share the gospel, but I don't think he knows what happens when I start talking to him about this. Well, let me tell you, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Left the church a long time ago. Or, or maybe they'll try to prove to me they have some denomination they're affiliated with. You know, my family's been Catholic for generations. I'm like, that's great, man. Uh, I'm, I had a friend in high school you know, and I'm trying to share Jesus with him. He's like, my family's from Alabama, you know, and so, yeah, we've always gone to church. I'm like, but do you know Jesus? He's like, man, man, I'm Baptist. And I was like, yeah, man, but do you know Jesus? And so everybody's got a way of, of pursuing, of giving some sort of spiritual resume, right? No matter what one of, those, one of those answers might be, no matter what your answer might be, or maybe your friends, your neighbors, when you were a kid, what you might try to say to somebody, maybe You've been in a place where you try to prove people, no, 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 I, I really am religious. I really am spiritual. One of the dangers, though, in every approach of pursuing God is that we get so focused on how we are pursuing him that we actually lose God himself in the process. We get more focused and obsessed with how we're going after God, and we actually lose God. We actually lose the whole purpose for our pursuit in the first place, and I think Matthew 23 is about that exact point. Jesus warns us in Matthew 23 not to lose God within a great religious performance. That's gonna be the main idea of, of this sermon this morning. Jesus warns us not to lose God in the midst of a great religious performance. Jesus in this chapter is gonna give us two paths of pursuing God, two paths of a spiritual life, two paths of religion. One is a warning and the other is an invitation. So my prayer this morning is that we can take these woes, you heard that word over and over, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, let's take their woes as our warnings. 
And let's allow Jesus to warn us about one of the ways we might pursue God and actually miss him in our pursuit. But hidden in this passage in a few different places, and especially at the beginning and at the end, is an invitation from Jesus about the true and better way to pursue God. So first, we're going to start off by looking at the warning. He warns us, if you follow the scribes and Pharisees, you will be going down a dangerous path. I don't think you can read this chapter and come to any other conclusion. Do not follow their way. He says it explicitly at the beginning. He says it over and over and he says, woe to you. He says it at the end when he says, I wish I could gather you, but you don't want to come to me. You're not willing. But at the very beginning, Jesus diagnoses the problem for them. This rot amongst their ranks has crept in through their motives, their ways of carrying out their religion. It's not because the law is rotten, right? Paul struggled with that in the book of Romans. Should I call the law evil? No, it's not evil. It's good and it came from a good source. The problem is how they applied it and how they lived it out. They missed the whole point of the law, which was meant to drive them inward, show their need for God so they'd turn to him in grace. But instead, they took it as a challenge. I bet I could do all that. Yeah. So Jesus shows us early on in these first few verses how they missed the point. They were focused on performance. They were focused on performance. He says in verse five that the performance is their motivation. He says they do everything to be seen by others. Their whole motivation for their pursuit of God was performing in front of others. I'm gonna pursue God in such a way that others see me do it. But then as you keep reading the chapter, we see also that their performance is religious. Like notice some of the language that Jesus uses. They're trying to make converts. They're doing what David just talked about. They're traveling land and sea. They're traveling far to make a convert to their way of pursuing God. But Jesus warns them, when you do that, you're not helping their situation at all. You're converting them to something that's no closer to God. So they're performing, but they're performing in a way that's religious. They're performing uh, this religious way. They're making converts. They know the scriptures. They're trying to follow the law. This is religion we're talking about. But then we also see that their performance, their religious performance, is selective. Jesus says, you're worrying about tithing these spices and herbs, and you're completely ignoring the weightier, the more central and foundational pieces of the law. Things like justice faithfulness. But by God, you're tithing your dill and your mint and your cumin. Like, you're tithing these things, but, but you're completely missing the point of how the law gets into your heart and changes who you are. It's because they're all focused on performance, performance that is religious, performance that is selective. I'm only going to perform in the best possible ways. I'm going to choose the parts of the law that I think I have the best shot at being good at. I'll ignore the other parts that actually challenge me and that I'm going to be a failure at, but I'll highlight the ones I'm really good at. Then we see their performance is external. Jesus gives them some woes because it seems like they're clean on the outside, but when you get on the inside, it's death, it's rotten, it's dirty, it's impure. Their performance is external. And Jesus, over and over in this passage, uses the word hypocrite or hypocrisy. Actually, he uses that word seven times in this passage. This is a a very important word in the ancient world. As plays were becoming more and more popular, people would become actors and actresses, and they would play a part. 
Some of you know about being in plays, your school plays or your drama club. Kids, maybe you hear about this at school. And for the ancient world in the first century, the word that they would use for people who played a part in a play was this Greek word for hypocrite. Because it was used to describe someone who would wear a mask and be someone other than who they really are. And Jesus is calling them over and over, your actors, your play actors, playing this religious performance in front of other people, but at the end of the day, the mask comes off and that's not who you are. Sometimes I imagine what would happen if I saw one of my favorite actors or actresses from a show I love. Like if I saw Amy Poehler, would I call her Amy or Leslie? If you're familiar with Parks and Rec. There's no doubt in my mind that I would call Steve Carell Michael Scott. And I'm sure all of you have a show or a movie that has just become so ingrained in your head and you love it and you see that character. And maybe you watch them in one thing and then you, you watch him play another part and you go, I just can't. Like, that's not who Michael Scott is. He's not the serious banker, right, in the big short. And I can't get past that because he is this character to me. But then you meet him on the street and you realize that's not who they are. They played that part for that show that you love, that you spent hours watching and binging on Netflix. That's not really who they are. The Jewish leaders had people thinking that they were truly and genuinely religious. They wore a religious mask to appear that way before everyone. But if you could see underneath the mask, you would see that's not really who they are because their entire religion was, according to Jesus in Matthew 23, a performance. They did everything to be seen by other people. Maybe a, a better example of an actor that plays the part is uh, Carrie and I have been watching and catching up on Seinfeld. And it's a great, dry, boring, funny show, and we love it. But I was thinking about this message and this whole idea of playing another part, and the reality is uh, Steve Carell doesn't play Steve Carell in the show. He plays Michael Scott, completely fictitious character, right? Same with Amy Poehler playing Leslie Knope or Nick Offerman playing Ron Swanson in Parks and Rec. You, you get these actors and actresses playing totally different parts with totally made-up names. But in Seinfeld, what you get is Jerry Seinfeld plays Jerry Seinfeld. But he plays this built-up pretty perfect, wonderful version of himself. And as I'm watching Seinfeld and I'm reading Matthew 23, I'm thinking, that's the part most of us would like to play, right? I don't need a whole new name, a whole new character, write me a script, make something completely fictitious. I'll play myself, I'll just play a better written up version of myself where I can edit out the bad parts, leave in the good parts, and actually let's edit them up a little bit so they seem better than they really were, funnier than they really were. Let's retell this story, and let's recast some people in my life, too. Yeah, a lot of this is based on Larry David. Larry, you're not a great actor. We couldn't foresee Curb Your Enthusiasm, so let's get uh, this guy to come play George Costanza, right? So I can edit my life, but really, I'm playing myself. And that's the kind of performance I think most of us would like to play. We're not looking for something totally fictitious. We're not looking for a made-up story with a whole new script we need to memorize. We're okay with our pattern of life, but boy, if I could be a better version of myself, that's the kind of religion that I would like to sign up for. And that's the kind of religion most people are looking for today. Go on the street, go through your neighborhood today, and just ask a random person, are you religious? Would you like to be religious? You know, I try to be pretty good. I try to follow most of the rules. I try to not hurt anyone. I try to do what's best for me. I try to be the best version of myself. I try to live my best life. 
Jesus has some harsh words here for people who want to make external, selective performance their whole religion. He says, be careful because this path is dangerous. You will miss God if this is the kind of religion that you're after. Towards the end, we learn that their performance is also prideful. They look back at their ancestors and they say, I'll never be as bad as them. They killed the prophets. They were not receiving the word of God. We would never be that bad. And Jesus says, oh, the irony. Yes, you will. In a mere matter of days, you're going to kill not just a prophet, but the true and perfect prophet from God. The whole point of of their warnings, Jesus speaking to both his disciples and the crowds and the scribes and Pharisees is, let their woes be a warning to us, and here's the warning. They are so close and yet so far away. What's dangerous about following this kind of religion or following these kinds of leaders is that you think the more you do, the better you perform, the more confident you are in yourself, the better you are. But the reality is the more you do, the better you perform, the more confident you are in yourself, the further away you are from the point of it all. The point of religion, the point of pursuing God is not how well and how perfectly crafted can I shape my pursuit. Can I pursue God in the best way that other people will look at my life and go, wow, they've got it together. He has got it. I see what he's doing. Wow, that's amazing. Jesus says they love to be out in public and for people to greet them. Oh, rabbi, and for people to see how long their phylacteries were. And and that was a way that they would pray and, and remember some of the core passages of the Hebrew Bible. They would put these little boxes on their head or on their wrist and they would have these long tassels for how, oh, wow, this person must be great at praying. Jesus says they have missed the point. Claiming to know the way, he says they were actually blind guides. He says that five times in this passage. Now to sum up their whole way of religion, Jesus in verse four of Matthew 23 says that their way is burdensome and heavy. This is a great summary. This way of doing religion is very heavy and burdensome. Let's read verse four. They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. This word burden or load here in verse four, it it would be used to refer often to cargo. And that got me thinking. Not all cargo is bad, right? When we think of the word burden, we think of something that's bad. But if you say cargo, that's not bad. Certain things are built to carry cargo, right? Certain sizes of planes, certain massive ships. Maybe the most common one we see every day is like a semi-truck. That's meant to carry cargo. Thank God I see those Walmart and Amazon semi-trucks driving down the highway so I can get my stuff in like 12 and a half hours after I order it. Certain things are built to carry that kind of cargo. Semi-trucks can carry like 80,000 pounds. But if you think about the way they're built, right? 18 wheelers, they've got all these wheels and all these axles that spreads out the way so they can carry, uh, carry these things safely. They were built to carry that kind of load. Now, I'm a proud newish truck owner. A couple years ago, I got a truck. And one of the first things we did up here, we had a work day and we need to pick up some bags of concrete. And I was thrilled to put my new truck to work. So I said, hey, I got it. And someone had called and ordered the concrete and I backed my truck up and the guy has a pallet full of concrete. Now all the true men in the room are already smiling, going, yeah, this isn't gonna work, super great in your truck. 
You guys have a normal pickup truck, right? And so the guy's like, what do you want me to do with it? And I was like, put it in my truck, man. What do, you, what do I look like? <laughs> so the guy, okay, you know, not my truck. Gets the pallet, drops it in the back of my truck, and I'm just watching the bed of my truck just sink, sink, sink. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think my, I don't know how much weight my truck can carry. All the weight, I don't know. And so uh, a couple guys were meeting in there. We had to take bags of concrete, put some in Josh's car, put some in other people's car just to spread the weight out. And I had to go like super slow the whole way from Home Depot to uh, down Shalford Road to the church here. And it, I thought it was going to blow the suspension out of my truck. I almost ruined my truck like two weeks after having it. Because my truck wasn't built to carry that kind of weight, right? Well, there are trucks that are. There's some pickup trucks that are able to carry that. There's some trailers there. You know, certainly you get bigger, you get to box truck, you get to some other kind of trucks that are built to carry that kind of weight, and that's what they were designed to do. But you put it on a smaller truck, it's not gonna work. If you pursue God in the way of performance, it's like backing up all that weight and dumping it on you that you were not designed to carry and it will crush you. It will weigh you down, and it will give you a weary life constantly trying to measure up before God because you were not designed to carry that kind of weight. This is an exhausting treadmill. That's not the kind of religion Jesus invites us into. That's not the kind of religion of the Bible. Because you were not designed for that. We need to let these woes be our warnings. Warning, you cannot carry the weight of a performance-oriented religion before God. Now, there's good news. There is another way. Another way we were designed for. And Jesus in this passage gives us an invitation. He gives us these woes to condemn the scribes and Pharisees' way of doing life. But then he turns, and if you read in verse 8, Remember, he's talking to crowds, disciples. In verse eight, it's pretty clear he shifts to talk to his disciples for a minute. But you are not to be called rabbi. Hey, those who are following my way, but you don't live like this. And what we learn is that, first, the way of Jesus is not burdensome and heavy. This word for loads in uh, verse four is the same word that Jesus uses at the end of Matthew 11, the same exact word. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden, there's the same word, is light. The way of Jesus is not burdensome and heavy. When you come to Jesus, please, please get this. When you come to Jesus, there is no such thing as, I don't know if I have what it takes. There is no such thing as, I, I just don't know that I could add that to my life. I don't know that I can do all that he asked me. I don't know that I can follow all those rules. That's not the invitation. You do not come to Jesus to exchange one burden for another. It's not burdensome and it's not heavy. Why not? Because of the way of Jesus, this is the second way that his way is different. The way of Jesus is not built on your performance. Notice what he says in verses 8 through 12. You don't have to strive to be the best rabbi. You don't have to strive to be the best teacher. You don't have to strive to be the best instructor. Don't strive at all to be known for how great you are. 
The way of Jesus is not built on your performance. He's like, you're not to be called rabbi. You're not to be called father. You're not to be called teacher. The point is not you at all. The spiritual life that God desires for you cannot be performed. God's not building an all-star team, and so the pressure is totally off. Okay, how can the pressure be off? Because the way of Jesus is totally centered on God. It's centered on God from start to finish. Jesus' way is built around the one instructor, the one Messiah, the one Father. The pressure's off because the point is not how much activity you can do for God. The point of Jesus' way is how much of your life you get to do with God. Now, the performance way says, how much can you do for God? Show me. Show me all the ways you serve. Show me all the ways you give. Show me all the rules you follow. Show me all the sins you don't commit. But, but the way of Jesus says, tell me about how you do your life with God. Tell me what that's like to live with him in love, to spend time with him, to enjoy fellowship with him, and then to carry him into the parts of your life that are hard, that feel like failures, that's the way of Jesus. It's centered on God. This goes back to what Jesus said in chapter 22 about the greatest commandment. It's to love God. And then what we see is that the way of Jesus, it brings real change. See, the performance way of doing religion was all about changing your behavior on the outside, but Jesus steps in and changes you from the inside out so that the law is actually written on our hearts. It's not an external standard that says you've got to measure up. It's something that begins to flow from the inside out instead of outside in. But what we see at the very end of this chapter is we see that the way Jesus cares, not just for his followers, but for even those who are rejecting him. He turns at the end and prays this lament over the city of Jerusalem that they've not turned to him. And he uses this picture of a, of a hen. And throughout history, a, a hen has been a picture of, of motherhood because a hen is fiercely protective. A hen is willing to die with her chicks under her wings before she lets the attacker get in to kill her chicks. But under the wings was also a place of warmth and love. It was a, a place of protection, a place of safety. What a picture for Jesus to use to close out this chapter. Bringing woes and warnings, being harsh, honestly. There are some teachings of Jesus that completely secular, non-Christian people love right? Like they love to talk about how Jesus was kind and non-judgmental. And I'm thinking, you've not read Matthew 23. He is quite judgmental. But then he ends this chapter by saying, like a hen gathers her chicks, I have wanted to gather you under my wings to protect you from judgment, to keep you safe, secure in me forever. Jesus laments and grieves over how the people have failed to respond to him all throughout the gospel of Matthew. We've seen that the religious people who were so close were yet so far, and Jesus is grieved by that. He's not happy. Jesus wants to give us the shelter of protection under his wings. He wants to give us the warmth and love of a mother hen taking care of her chicks, and he, just like that mother hen, would die to protect those that are his. In fact, he did die to protect us. This is how great his love is for us. The way of Jesus is not about a brutal lawgiver demanding that we measure up, constantly evaluating our performance. The way of Jesus is about us receiving his incredible self-sacrificial love 
so that we are changed from the inside out to love him more supremely and love others selflessly. That, friends, is the way of Jesus, that we receive his love in a way that changes from the inside out so we actually become more loving people ourselves. The warning here is certainly for the religious leaders. It's for the scribes and the Pharisees, but it's for us too. There's a warning in this last section even for the city of Jerusalem is left to you desolate. And then verse 39, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is a kind of an ode, a pointing to when Christ will come for the last time. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. This warning is that if you don't take refuge in his wings now, you won't see him again until he comes to rule and to reign. You have a chance now to come and find safety under his wings. But if you don't, if you choose to live this life with a performance-oriented way, thinking I've got what it takes, I can do it on my own, then we'll leave you up to that. He will allow you to do that. But Jesus says, come now and see me. Today, don't wait. Come and see me for who I am. See Jesus this morning as the one inviting you to shed the heavy burden of a religion of performance. Come to the one in whom you can take refuge, the one who loves you. And that's really the only way to change. Not behavior modification, not your own strength, not your own willpower. Or else, Jesus says, you'll be left up to your own performance in this life. Your own performance will be a life without God. You'll miss God in the way you're trying to pursue him. And, and if you're left up to your own performance all throughout this life, then you'll get an eternity without him too. There's a warning in this passage. There's a warm invitation, but there's also a warning. Come to Jesus. Receive his love today. And if you are already one of his followers, I pray you would be encouraged that Jesus is not standing here with a checklist, evaluating the performance of the last time you were here, thinking, well, let's see. Yeah, it's about time you drag yourself through those doors again. Let's see how this last week's been. Mm. I see those thoughts. I see those words. I see that life. Goodness. I'd be here more often if I were you. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus is like the father of the prodigal son who sees you a long way off, coming in your shame with a speech prepared to make him take you back and explain how you know you're not worthy and so you're gonna go be a slave, not a son. And when Jesus sees you a long way off, he runs out the door and says, welcome home. I love you. Don't ever leave me again, you fool. Can your speech and come in, we're throwing a party because I'm glad you're here. Friends, that is the way of Jesus. It's not about performance. It's about presence. And Jesus is inviting you to a life of being present with him here and on the other side of death in the resurrection life with him forever. Let's pray.